electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the rally in stocks. Four straight and counting now for the S&P. Altimeter's Brad Gerstner with us exclusively today on where he's investing right now. The investment committee also here to debate your money's next move. And joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal, Josh Brown, John Ajarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's good to see everybody today. Let's go to the wall, take a look at stocks. We're about a percent away from a new high on the S&P. A busy week of earnings is rolling on. As I said, we've got Gerstner coming up along with BlackRock's Rick Reeder. He told you stocks were going higher in his last halftime appearance. We'll find out what he thinks now. Richard Fisher will tell us what the Fed's going to do next month as well. But Dow's good for 161. Farmer Jim, Mr. All In, I guess the market's finally come around to your point of view. It's listening loud and clear, Jimmy. Well, it's you know what? It's such an easy point of view to have. First off, 90% of the time you're going to be right if you're just bullish. I really don't understand people who get so bearish and really stick to their guns. You're like a salmon swimming upstream all the time. It's such hard work. Why don't you just go with the flow, which is always higher? And there's reasons for it to be higher, right? We're seeing where earnings are. They're high. They're growing. Yes, there are risks out there. But, Scott, there's always risks out there. There's always risk that Congress does something stupid or that the Fed gets aggressive which, by the way, it's not going to do anytime soon. What, what you have here is early in an economic expansion, uh, you got profits growing, you got jobs are plentiful. Yeah, I know there's supply chain bottlenecks. They'll work themselves out. I can't tell you how soon. I have no idea. I can't tell you if it's two weeks, two months, two quarters, but I don't think <clears> it's two years. And the people who are doing that doomsaying, I think, are a bit ridiculous. This is a good time to be in the cyclical trades. Doesn't mean you give up on FANG. FANG is performing well right now and for the long run will do well. But right now, the cyclicals, you see energy, you see my Marathon Petroleum, you see industrials, you see my Northrop Grumman. I could go on and on, but it's a good time for the cyclical trade early in an economic expansion. I'll tell you what, Steph, it, it does feel like the whole tone of the market has changed in the, in the balance of, of a week. So I, I wonder if it's just mm-hmm. time to capitulate on all this correction nonsense. I mean, Baycrest Jonathan Krinsky out with a new note just before we came on the air. He says, quote, seasonals are now a tailwind. Optimistic sentiment has been reset, and we're seeing consumer discretionary breakout of a multi-month base versus staples, which is generally indicative of risk on. I read some comments yesterday from Mike Wilson that are, are making the rounds where it sounds to me like he's ready to capitulate. Now, we'll find out from him directly if he's willing to do that. Um, but it sure sounds like it. Is it time to capitulate on all that negativity well, stuff? 
Yes, I mean, I've been positive, especially about 4Q, because seasonally it is strong. I agree with a lot of what Jim just said. There are tailwinds. Liquidity, it's ample. Even with the taper, it's still tremendous in terms of what we're getting from the monetary side. We might even get more on the fiscal side. Don't know about that, but that could be a possibility. Interest rates are benign. They're rising, but they're rising slowly, and they're rising for the right reasons. Better growth, more inflation. Consumer, consumer is 70% of the the U.S. GDP. Consumer, ha- they have jobs if they want them. Wages are going higher and they have $2 trillion in excess savings. So there's pent up demand. You add all of this up and you have earnings that probably get revised higher. And why is that important? Because stocks follow earnings. And I think you are going, you're st- already starting to see earnings go higher. Look at the banks. Every single one of those names beat and numbers went higher. So that's a good sign. We still have a ways to go. But I am encouraged so far. Now, I worry about inflation. I worry about energy prices and demand destruction, for, especially for the consumer. So that is a very big watch point for me. But I, between now and the end of the year, I want to be long and I want to be in cyclicals and reopen names because I think that's a theme that's going to carry into 2022 yeah, as well. That's where Marco Kalanovic is talking about again today. Stay cyclicals. Tom Lee, all signs point to more risk on. Josh Brown, I want to know what's on your mind. Beyond, beyond the black truffle burger at the Shake Shack. All right. All right. Let's not overdo it. Listen, 50 percent of 50 percent of the NDX and SPX names are now back above the 50 day, but 50 percent are not. So there's still a lot more healing to do beneath the surface. The recovery of that last 50 percent of stocks that are still below the short-term moving average could be the catalyst for the next market-wide move higher. Um, And when I look at, like, what's working right now, there's no story. Like, there's no rhyme or reason. Almost everything is starting to participate here, which is typical uh, going into year-end. Maybe it doesn't normally start this early. Uh, Probably usually starts around Thanksgiving. But, like, I look at Walmart, Target, Costco, just went on massive runs. Yeah, no kidding, consumer discretionary. The consumer's balance sheet in history has never been in as good a shape as it is right now. That is actually the best part of the economy today. Then you look at the high beta names. The ARC names are running. All the high beta stuff from last year that spent this whole year getting murdered, starting to look like they've bottomed. Zoom is a really great example of that. Shopify, Spotify, both ripping, even Teladoc, which is one of the worst looking stocks I've ever seen. That looks like it bottomed. And then you look at the big winners, Snow, oh my God. Look at this chart, put it up there for me, Patty. Uh, Unity, (laughs) uh, ticker symbol U, another red hot, looks incredible. So that makes sense, right? But then they're also running up the bank stocks. You got a 52 week high in the banks. They're running up REITs. Look at my Simon property. 52-week high. Solar stocks, I've never seen anything like this. ENPH is the number one performing stock in the S&P 500 today. A lot of those names look great. Um, And even Apple is running after a decent pullback. So it's like, forget about this cyclical, non-cyclical, risk on, risk off, reopening. Throw that out. That is last year's news. It's like the worst thing I've ever heard. Focus on how many charts in how many different industry groups are starting to set up either because they've bottomed or because they refuse to pull back while the overall market did. I, and there are just so many opportunities out there. I love the riff. I just love the riff that you, you just went on. You highlighted so many important things. Dr. J, look, I mean, you've been a little bit negative relative to other people, right? Um, you know, you thought rates are going to move up a little bit. 
that the market nah, may not be able to withstand that. Now, I know we're talking about higher levels than this. And that's the, the Kalanovic point that said, look, oil can go to, you know, 130 and rates can go to two and a half yeah. and then the market can withstand that. But you do have rates up. You do have oil up and you got stocks up and the S&P is not that far away from from a new high. I mean, the tone has changed, Doc. You can feel that, can't you? Uh, yes, Scott. I, I think the uh, the overall uh, we are getting that lift right now. Um, I'm delighted for it, uh, as the other uh, panel members are, uh, because uh, ev- virtually everything in your portfolio is moving to the upside. Josh cited those solar stocks. He's absolutely right um, because of. Uh, what's going on with coal? What's going on with natural gas? What's going on with oil? Uranium stocks. So, of course, TAN has to move as well because the alternatives, any of the alternatives that people have become more attractive if they haven't made the similar moves to what we've seen in those other uh, commodities. So the TAN is up almost 5% today. That's a broad uh, uh, swath of those solar stocks and so forth. Uh, That feels pretty good. The energy trade is still moving right along. I disagree, as I said, with Kalanovic about $130 oil, but we're not there. You know, we're obviously nearly $50 from that level. I think that would be something, Scott, that would be a big negative. That's not what I'm shooting against right now. I think you just sit back, enjoy the ride, like Farmer Jim has said. Mm -hmm. And right now, um, we have massive upside buying into this earnings season. So unless we see significant disappointments from the people that actually have to deliver a product rather than deliver something over the Internet, I think this could continue. All right, let me let me do this. Let, let's get to a couple of quick items before we bring in Gerstner, because I can't wait to hear his thoughts on the cloud stocks that are moving up, what's going on in the Nasdaq, et cetera. Josh, you sold Zillow. Um, you bought it in the low 90s. Yep. We know about the news this week. They stopped buying the homes. Um, just take us through your trade here. Yeah, so there are too many, as I mentioned, there are so many stocks setting up here nicely. There are so many breakouts happening. I can't have something in my portfolio of individual names where the company is basically admitting that they're not executing and they have no plans to fix it until at least the end of the year. I I just, I can't afford it. So there's too much else that I want to do. Um, So I look at uh, what's going on at at Zillow, not as their failure, but mine. I bought the stock down 55%. On the year, I thought that was enough. Apparently, things are going worse there than what the market already uh, had surmised. So it's a very, very short-term trade. It ended mm-hmm. up being, it's okay. We move on. We do other things. Well, what we do on this show, we, we highlight the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, that, that's what we do. That's what we've always done over the last 10 oh, years. Now, now let's dog. talk about the good. You so- I was going to say, you, you saw me pull the ripcord in Leslie's this year. That didn't work. You saw me pull the ripcord in Bristol-Myers, a failed technical breakout. Mm-hmm. If you're not, like, acknowledging when you're wrong and, and moving on, you're not really doing this in real life. Like, the only people who are playing for batting average are on Twitter. In real life, it's about dollars, wins and losses, uh, aren't as important. It's what are you losing or what are you making. Well, so I was wrong. You have, to be, you have to be willing to say... This was my idea. It's not panning out the way I thought it was. Speaking of pulling the ripcord, I mean, when you bought Coinbase at 250, 255, it sounded like you had the parachute on just in case things fell apart. Mm. And I guess you've taken it off because the stock's at 303, 304 uh, as we speak. It's moving higher. You got the new Bitcoin ETF. 
So your thoughts on Coinbase, uh, just a, a great call. Yeah, I, I didn't expect it to move this fast, frankly. I'll probably move up a trailing stop. Um, I'm not going to leave my, my original in. Uh, but the idea behind Coinbase was very simple. I'm speaking to people all the time in, in our industry. Everybody is trying to figure out how to, uh, how to make crypto a part of what they're doing. And again, I do believe Gemini and Coinbase are going to be the two biggest winners coming out of this. Only one of them is publicly traded. So I think Coinbase is setting itself up as a 21st century uh, custodian for the digital economy. And they have a really, really big lead. Um, and that's about as much thought as I put into it. All right. Let's bring in Brad Gerstner. He's our first headliner of the day, the founder and CEO of Altimeter Capital. He joins us out from Los Angeles. Good to see you. Thanks for being a, a part of this this week. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. And uh, happy 10th yeah, thank, um, thank you. from Milken and uh, all the investors out here. You know, I, I appreciate it very much. Um, how timely to have you, given the conversation that we were just having, um, from software like Snowflake, which are ripping. It's up 5% this week. Um, stocks are not that far away from a new high. We spoke three weeks ago or so at Delivering Alpha, which wasn't televised. Snippets of, of our conversation were played. You said at that point you were 55% net long versus 75 last year and that the NASDAQ needed to come in fairly substantially from the levels that it was at a few weeks ago. It's, it's going the opposite direction. What, what's going on now? Well, listen, after listening to Josh, I'm all fired up and I probably need to go buy some more stuff. But, um, you know, listen, we're in the business of assessing probabilities and there's a distribution of probabilities here. Everybody agrees that rates and liquidity are having an impact on multiples. And what I said is, you know, we've decided that we're going to have a little less on right than uh, than we did at this time last year because multiples have come up a lot. Let me just give you one one statistic. If the NASDAQ were to correct, if the growth multiples were to correct to January 2020 levels, pre-COVID, in January 20, nobody thought that multiples were too low. We'd have about a 30% correction in the NASDAQ. So I think when you're looking at the distribution of probabilities, whether you're playing from home or whether you're doing this for a living, you need to leave open the possibility that as rates begin to move up, as the world normalizes, multiples are going to normalize. That can that can occur. And at the same time, at the same time, great fundamental innovations will lead to value creation that are that will continue to be investable. Have you changed your your positioning since we last spoke? Have you increased your long exposure by virtue of what the market seems to be doing? It's seasonally, as I mentioned already, according to notes and what we know from history's sake is we are entering a period that's usually pretty good for the market. I mean, Scott, every day we're in the market adding or subtracting, uh, you know, to positions, but we haven't had any material changes and we're playing over a longer arc, right? Our largest position is Snowflake, which Josh, you know, just talked about uh, an incredible business we think will be much larger, you know, three, four or five years from now. Um, but if the market corrects due to uh, interest rate corrections, et cetera, it too will come in. And so I think you just have to Understand that you're playing in a market where valuations are at or near all-time highs, that there may be corrections, and you need to make sure that your exposures allow you to play through those corrections to buy more when things are off. Remember, in Q2 of this year, Snowflake was at $180 or $190 a share, and I didn't hear too many people banging the table to buy Snowflake in Q2. Today, it's at 340 and I think that is representative of the market writ large 
people need to assess that distribution of risk and return and make their own calls. So it sounds, though, like you're not backing away from your call that the Nasdaq needs to correct. And you're expecting it to happen at some point as rates continue to, in your words, normalize, whether that's two weeks, two months or, 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 or whenever. You're not de- deterred at all by the recent price action in the Nasdaq, which, again, feels like the market wants to continue to move up. Scott, we're very long this market, right? So we have a hedge fund that is long the market. We have venture capital funds that are very long the market. So we're benefiting from this upward move. All I would say is that the probabilities are, as the world normalizes, as rates normalize, multiples will likely revert closer to the mean. I don't know when that is. We don't call tops or bottoms. Um, But when that occurs, we've probably pulled forward 6, 12, 18 months worth of returns. It could simply mean that the Nasdaq goes sideways for a period of time, or it could mean that we have some air pockets along the way. We have certainly saw those in November of uh, 2018. Remember, just on the fear of rising rates, we had a 30% intra-quarter correction in the Nasdaq. What I fear today is that nobody has any fear. Um, that tells me that the consensus is in the camp that they need to put more money on, likely to have some corrections here. But, you know, we're long the market um, and we'll continue to, uh, you know, buy where we see opportunities. What looks best to you now? I, I mentioned that the conversation we had in Delivering Alpha, we had, had broken some news at that point that you had sold out of United Airlines and Expedia um, and some of the Chinese Internet names that you had owned. And you all but called China uninvestable at this particular time. What looks attractive to you? Have you bought anything new and exciting recently? Well, I think, uh, as you and I discussed, we had set up a travel recovery fund uh, on April 1st to 2020. We said to our investors who invested in that, when we saw TV cameras back in airports, that we would distribute uh, those returns. It was a great run for those companies. They all still have a Uh, you you know, a decent future ahead of them. But we saw better opportunities for those dollars. So we rotated into other things. Um, You know, we think that um, there are always opportunities within the market. Take, for example, Facebook, highly controversial stock trading at 20 times, uh, you know, earnings, 21 times uh, next year's free cash flow for 20 percent growth. So it's trading at the same multiple of free cash flow as the S&P, but it's growing four times as fast. It's investing five times as much in R&D on an annual basis as most companies in the S&P. So we think that that's a really interesting opportunity to have very fair valuation in a market that is largely inflated. Despite all of the stuff around, you know, everything that I'm referring to around Facebook, you can disconnect yourself as an investor and you're completely willing to do that, to look past all of the ugliness of the story that's been for the last many months and just focus on the fundamental investing analysis. And you don't think that's going to change in any way from a regulatory standpoint or any other? Well, let me let me be very clear. I'm a dad of a 13 and a 10 year old. Facebook is not in my top five list of concerns. Right. We don't talk about Snapchat. We don't talk about TikTok. I mean, the number of concerns that parents have, we don't talk about companies selling sugary substances to our kids. Um, So I actually 
applaud Facebook for doing the research they did. I wish they would open source the research that talks about impacts on teens. I wish they would challenge everybody else in the industry to do the same and give parents a quarterly report, a dashboard about the impact of, of, of all online activities uh, on kids. So no, I don't think Facebook is uniquely bad. In fact, I think the leadership team there is doing a terrific job. I think it's a great, uh, you know, a great investment and probably the most innovative company at scale today other than uh, other than ByteDance. You really think that the, the management team there, in, in light of some of the stories that have come out recently, whistleblower included and others, is doing, in your words, a terrific job? I mean, come on. I think a lot of people would take issue, Brad, with, with that statement that Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and you can go down the list, um, could do a lot better than they've done, quite frankly. You don't think so? Listen, I communicate with management. I've told them I think it would be a great idea to open source uh, this report to challenge other people to do the same. I mean, why aren't we asking other companies, Scott, why they're not doing this research? Why aren't we asking them, where is TikTok's research on the impact on kids, Snapchat's research on the impact on kids? The fact that the media is unilaterally focusing on Facebook seems to me to be misdirected. I would also point out that the leadership team at Facebook have young kids. I know them personally, and I do think they take all of this extraordinarily seriously. Aren't you? Well, why don't you ask TikTok? Aren't you in ByteDance? We are in ByteDance, and we have raised it to the company, along with uh, along with other companies. You know, I've tweeted about this, and I think that uh, you, listen. You have these guests on all the time, and I think there's an opportunity for you. You've always changed the conversation. This conversation should not just be about Facebook. It should be about the impact generally of these activities of the most used applications on our children. Apple needs to account for this. Google needs to account for this. Snapchat needs to account for this. And yes, Facebook needs to account for it as well. I think the best thing we could do is open source the research and and provide a longitudinal study of the impact of these activities on our kids. Um, Let's move on to the conversation about private versus public uh, companies and investing, because frankly, I didn't realize that you you have more money, I think, under management that's being invested in private companies versus public, which leads to the question of, do you think you can deliver more alpha in the private market versus public? And if so, what does that say about public market investing to our viewers who are watching? Yes, Scott, as you know, I started really in the venture capital business. And over the last 20 years, we've seen massive uh, industrialization in venture. I mean, think about it. Salesforce went public at a billion dollars valuation. Google went public at a $25 billion valuation. ByteDance will go public at over $500 billion valuation. All of that value creation is occurring in the venture market, not in the public market. So since I started Altimeter, the objective was to be the best crossover fund to help entrepreneurs not only on their venture journey, but as they cross into the public markets and then to continue being an investor. So what you see is a consolidation of some major brands like Altimeter and Tiger and Co2 that participate in both of those markets. I think there's amazing value creation opportunity in the private markets. It's frankly less competitive because fewer of us have opportunity to invest in those best companies. I think one of the things we need to change in this country is accredited investor rules. We need to make it easier for more people to own these venture quality companies, particularly when they're staying private longer. 
right? No longer are we uh, living at the moment where companies are coming public at 500 million or a billion. They're coming public at 10 or 20 or mm-hmm. 30 billion. Mm-hmm. And all that value capture today is going to venture capitalists as opposed to public market and retail investors. It reminds me of Uber. It's a perfect segue to talk about Uber, which was, you know, a late stage going public company. Um, and you remain a, a big supporter. Do you not? And so Josh Brown is, is on the show, too, as you said. I'd like to get his thoughts, too, but I want to hear from you first on Uber. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Uber is one of those companies that got hyped way up in the in, in the private markets, came public at a valuation uh, that was challenging. Then we had covid that hit. Um, you know, but I give a lot of credit to Dara Kasher Shahi and the team at Uber that have fought through covid, that have fought through cultural changes. When I look at the business today, right a year ago, we said our people are go- going to continue to take deliveries of goods and, and, and food at their home post covid. The answer to that is unequivocally yes. Look at DoorDash. Look at Uber. The second question was, can they be profitable? The answer is yes. DoorDash and Uber are proving uh, profitability both on the unit level as well as on a consolidated level. In fact, rideshare is going to be way more profitable than people originally thought. Um, And so we'll wait and see what they say in Q3. My expectation is that Uber is gaining share on a global deliveries basis. They're gaining share in the U.S. They're expanding margins. And today we have a massive multiple difference. Uber's trading at five times next year's revenue. I think DoorDash is closer to 14 or 15 times next year's revenue. I expect that those will converge as people gain more confidence in the durability of Uber's uh, growth and the durability of their profitability. See the stock move up. I want to get Josh's take before I ask you about crypto. And I know you have a response to what Carl Icahn told me yesterday, and I don't want to miss that. But Josh Brown, on on Uber, um, you remain as bullish, I suppose, as Gerstner. Yeah, but I actually want to change the subject back to what you were talking about before, because I think what Brad is talking about is so important. On the one hand, we've got these accredited investor rules in order to prevent people who can't afford to take catastrophic losses to get involved with things that typically fail. We just happen to be in a moment in the last five years where almost everything works. You can get a SPAC exit. You can get a takeover. You can get uh, an IPO, 93 IPOs last quarter, which is a record for Q3 IPOs. This environment won't last. So I do worry about all of a sudden opening the floodgates to people who don't have the financial wherewithal to start putting money into private deals. But then the second component of that, Brad, and I'd love your take on it, um, this market has opened up a great deal. We're putting high net worth investors into uh, private market uh, startups. And the valuations are just as crazy as everything that people talk about on the NASDAQ. We put money into Klarna last year, I think at a $7 billion valuation. SoftBank is giving them money now at $40 billion. What really changed other than liquidity? Not much. And that's one example of probably a thousand. Do you worry that we've basically exported a bubble from the NASDAQ into the private markets? And what will be the fallout when when that inevitably comes to an end? I mean, Josh, thanks for the question. I mean, there are two things there. Number one, on valuations, we started the program by me saying there is no doubt we are underestimating the distortion that low interest rates and this amount of liquidity in a post-COVID world are having on multiples across the spectrum. 
everything is higher priced than it would have been if rates weren't at zero and we didn't have this amount of liquidity. So both as a venture investor and a public market investor, I'm just saying you have to have a balanced approach. You have to leave open the possibility that we're going to have a correction and manage a portfolio so that you can durably continue to invest through that cycle. Secondly, when it comes to accredited investors, listen, I agree with you. Gensler was on CNBC this morning. The fact that we have a rodeo going on on Robinhood every day where we have retail investors trading options in companies like GameStop. I mean, Josh, that is at least as risky as investing in a high quality venture backed company that Andreessen and Altimeter are investing in. So the idea that, that the venture markets are more risky than this activity going on in the public markets, I think, is misplaced. But I just want to better democratize the opportunities. And Scott's heard me say before, my idea around Invest America, give every child born in this country a $2,000 investment account and make all kids part of the ownership society. The biggest problem in this country is that there are only 30 or 40 percent of people who participate in the ownership society. That came uh, that came to the front during COVID. We need to correct that problem. You know, it's funny, as I was listening to you to talk about markets being distorted because of all of all of the liquidity. I mean, people have been saying that same thing since 08. Right. That that markets have been fully distorted, including, I mean, the bond market. Right. Interest rates since 2008 have remained historically ridiculous. Um, so it just makes me think about um, all of the liquidity in the system since then and the kind of same conversation that we've been having for the last 12 or 13 years. Let, let's do this. Speaking of whether markets, there's too much speculation or distortion or, or what have you. Bitcoin back above 60. You got the new futures ETF today. As you said, Gensler was on the network talking about it earlier. Icon was with me yesterday talking about Bitcoin specifically, which you wanted to take issue with. Let's listen to Carl. We can come back and opine on the other side. I think the jury's out on it. The jury is, is, is really out on whether it is or whether it's not. And I, I think if you could tell me what this economy is going to do, how inflationary it's going to get. Yeah, look, if, if inflation gets rampant, I guess it does have value. But will inflation get rampant? Or will the government come in, as they did in China, and just stop the thing, uh, pretty much? So there's so many, there's so many variables in it. That is a very difficult thing to invest in. I mean, he's not the only one who, who thinks that, and he likened it to gambling and said, if I want to gamble, I'll just go to Vegas. Yeah, listen, um, I have a lot of respect for Carl, and the jury may be out on whether or not Bitcoin goes up and down over the next 90 days, but the jury is not out on whether or not crypto is one of the most fundamental technical changes that I've seen over my investment career. You know, across the street from, uh, from Milken, um, there's a conference going on called Medici. I was there last night with the founders of L1 chains like Avalanche, Solana, ETH, etc. The fundamental technical changes going on are very profound. You know, at our firm, we always say, follow the world's best engineers. If the world's best engineers are going to Google, invest in Google. If they're going to Facebook, invest in Facebook. If they're going to Snowflake, invest in Snowflake. The world's best engineers today are all going into crypto. And the reason for that is we have a opportunity to really reinvent the Internet in a way that allows us to uh, uh, have something that can authenticate transactions, authenticate value that gets exchanged. And so I think it's an important innovation. We see more engineers and more development over the last 24 months than we saw in the prior eight years. 
And it's that level of innovation and that level of, of, of evolution in the utility of this thing that causes us to be pretty excited about crypto. Whether or not Bitcoin goes up over the next 90 days, I think, is a, total, a totally different question. You are always one of our faves. Um, I always enjoy the conversation. You get people talking, and that's the point. Brad, thank you. Yeah, thank. Keep it, keep it up, Scott. Another 10 years. I Thanks to you that. and yep. the entire team. Thanks so much. That's Brad Gerstner, uh, Altimeter, joining us today from out in Los Angeles. We have two more exclusives on Halftime tomorrow. The activist investor Nelson Peltz joins us. The hedge fund manager David Einhorn makes his return. Looking forward to that. We do have much more ahead today, including BlackRock's Rick Reeder. He told you stocks were going up. He was right. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm John Ford. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. FBI agents swarmed the home of Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska in Washington, D.C. today. Deripaska is a billionaire oil tycoon with close ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin and one of two dozen Russian oligarchs sanctioned by the Treasury Department in 2018. On the news, more on the reason for the raid tonight at 7 Eastern. And a top Haitian official says that the gang that kidnapped 17 American and Canadian missionaries is demanding $17 million to release them. FBI agents and other U.S. officials are working with Haitian authorities on their release. Among the victims, five children, one of them an eight-month-old baby. And in Southern California, some surfers got an up-close look at sharks swimming alongside them, if they were looking. Check it out. A drone captured several white sharks swimming along the coast in Del Mar. In some cases, it looks like the surfers were unaware of the sharks nearby, but experts say it's not uncommon for these white sharks to be spotted in the area. They are expected to stick around until late autumn. So you've been warned. Halftime Report returns after this. RBC out with its list of ESG contenders. 29 outperform rated stocks that the firm believes to have compelling ESG attributes. The contenders are not popular in actively managed sustainable funds, and RBC believes they could benefit as they climb ownership rankings. Among the names highlighted by RBC, General Motors, Plug Power, Dropbox, and Okta. That's your ESG fast fact of the day. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? 
Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Our next guest manages only $2.7 trillion as BlackRock CIO of Global Fixed Income. He's also the head of the Global Allocation Team. Let's bring in BlackRock's Rick Reeder. Mr. Reeder, welcome back. Thanks, Scott. Congrats on 10 years. Thanks for having me again. Thanks. It's good to have you back. Um, and I'm sure it's easier for you to be back because you said stocks are going higher. I think those were your exact mm-hmm. words. So that the easy part's out of the way now, Rick. <laughs> Where are they going from here? That's what we want to know. Uh, can I can I rest on, on the last call? <laughs> Listen, I, I I think they're going higher. I mean, I you know, Scott, I, I still, first of all, I'd say from two different perspectives. One, I think interest rates have made their move. I still think you can get a bit more out of rates. But I think the fear of, gosh, we're going to have dramatically higher interest rates dulling the valuations of the equity market. I, I don't think we're going much further from where we are today. Secondly, you know, when I look around, there are still a lot of stocks to buy that make sense. I was actually looking at the auto companies the other day. Boy, they're pretty reasonable relative to where they've been over time. You've got, a, you've got what is an inventory drawdown, a forward demand. Fund. There are enough stocks out there that have reasonable valuations that, yeah, I think we're going to keep going higher. And by the way, I think the earnings numbers, you know, some of the ones, you know, you're definitely seeing some pressure on margins from the Staples companies, but, you know, you knew that was going to happen. But, boy, I think the rest of the earnings picture, companies are pricing it through. And I think people underestimate, you know, we're doing a big analysis on this for a call I'm doing in a couple of days. When you get this sort of inflation of the equity market or the impact on the equity market, stocks do pretty well. And there's a real, if you can get passed through, which I would argue, given the demand function, you can. I think the earnings numbers are durable. And so I think we've got some upside still to go. You know, by the way. You know, the, the rich part of the fixed income market or the interest rate, it's not very interesting. More flows will continue in the equity market. 4,500 is where we sit on the S&P. What's reasonable between now and the end of the year, do you think? Uh, I mean, tough call. I mean, could you get another 5 to 8% out of the market? I think so. I mean, I don't see any reason why not. I think tech's got some upside to it that could be even more significant. So, yeah, I definitely think you can get another 5 to 8, maybe, maybe even 10. I, I think people underestimate. You said it earlier on the show. I know we've talked about it for months now. The amount of liquidity in the system is epic. I mean, the numbers I was looking at are pretty extraordinary. If you go back 20 years ago, it was $3 trillion of global liquidity. It's 40 today, $40 trillion. And it was 6% of GDP 20 years ago. It's 47% of global GDP today. You know, even the Fed tapers, they're not reducing the size of their balance sheet. They're just slowing down how much they're putting in. I, I, gosh, I think there's a lot of flows. And I mean, look at the size of money and money market funds today and where they're going to go and pension funds and endowments. Well, I still think you've got some ups here. I mean, I guess the question is, when is some of the liquidity going to come out? And for that, let's add Richard Fisher uh, to the conversation, if we could. He's the former Dallas Fed president. Um, love having him on, too. Richard, you there? That's good to see you. I'm glad you were able to join today. Oh, I appreciate it. And uh, being alongside of Rick is a great honor, by the way. It's, it's, good. it's, hard, to, it's hard to dispute what he says. It's, it's good to have you, you both. Um, so do you think we've seen the, the magnitude of the move in rates? Is, is this about it for the 10-year, 161, 162? Yeah, well, it depends on where you're looking on the curve. Obviously, the the two to five year space basically has doubled in yield since August. However, these are still very low rates. And as Rick points out, there's a lot of liquidity floating around the system. 
And then I think also very importantly, companies are passing on the inflationary pressures that they're seeing on the cost side and the input side. And consumers are, you know, seem to be taking it in at this juncture. That protects their margins. Look at what Procter just announced uh, this morning. And this is very typical behavior. So, uh, so far, I think that this has been well digested. I do worry that inflationary pressures are far from transitory. Again, if you read through Proctor's statement, just as one example. Of course. It shows you how long it takes for businesses to adjust and figure out how to reconfigure um, and re-up it, as they did in their announcement. Well, so I, this, this is that kind of environment right now. But, uh, again, I think Rick makes a significant key point the amount of liquidity coursing through the system. And, you know, 10 years ago, <laughs> that was when we had just finished up QE2. We added uh, $600 billion to the Fed balance sheet. And uh, then we went on another series in QE3. Uh, and then we didn't taper until 2013, actually January 2014 after the taper tantrum. Uh, at the end, the balance sheet was $4.5 trillion. And as Rick points out, it'll be 9 so is there too much? I mean, is there is there too much liquidity? Has the Fed already blown it, Richard? Um, you know, they should have already tapered, right? Well, you know, my view is uh, I would have started tapering a little bit earlier, but I'm no longer there. Besides that, I lost a lot of votes when I dissented. So um, but even Rick's point is key. Even if they taper down to the end next summer, as they hinted or announced, you're still going to have a pretty significant balance sheet, and they will not have likely raised rates until they get that process done. Although what's happened in the two- to five-year space is last couple of weeks is basically the equivalent of three uh, interest rate increases by the Fed. And yet the market's digested it. So there you have it. Well, because, Rick Reeder, the last word to you. Um, we've digested it because, as you, as you guys were just talking even with the taper, you're still going to be doing QE2 plus of, of bond buying. And the market knows that more than anybody else. Yeah, no, I, th- I, mean, I think that's right. And like Richard said, you know, you're pricing in. A part of why the Fed, I think, should have started tapering a bit earlier is you need to open the window. And they've, they've articulated they won't start raising rates until well after they finish this, this tapering program. You need to start getting there so that in case you need to create some breaking of, uh, of, of this inflation trend, you can start to move rate higher. Markets have priced in, like Richard said, two hikes for 22, almost two hikes for 22, and, and, and then three into 23. So like, like you said, the system is starting to anticipate the Fed doing it. I, I actually question whether they are going to move that much, but I think they should start in 22. I think they definitely think they should start moving, and I think they need to open that, open that window up. But listen, if you look historically where real rates are, and I, and I think real rates are going to say persistently lower than they've been over time. This doesn't sense to say rates can't move a bit higher than they are today. But there's a series of structural dynamics, including demographics, using pension funds now being fully funded, that I think real rates will stay lower, even though you have a Fed that's, uh, that's reducing the amount that they're putting into the system. Yeah. Both of you guys have been good friends of this program. I uh, sincerely appreciate that. It's good having you on this week. Richard Fisher, Rick Reeder, I hope to see both of you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Two big interviews again tomorrow. Nelson Peltz, David Einhorn are going to join us. We'll come back right after Jim Cramer's with us, too, by the way. I mean, it's going to be a big day and I can't wait for that. I need to hear from Stephanie Link on J&J. I definitely need to do that today. 
I need to hear from John Najarian on Walmart. I need his unusual activity. We'll do it next. J&J is higher today after beating EPS estimates. Stephanie Link, I said I need to hear from you. Stock's having a nice day. It is having a nice day. They beat earnings. Um, revenues grew 11%. They raised estimates. And that just speaks to their strong pipeline. R&D's up 28% year-to-date. Free cash flow, $15 billion. I expect another dividend increase in the short term. Jimmy Labenthal, why do you prefer Bristol-Myers to J&J? Well, hey, Scott, I, unfortunately, I can't talk about Johnson & Johnson, but I'll talk about Bristol-Myers. You want to talk about um, Johnson & Johnson my- or something? What do you mean you can't talk about no, it? No, 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 I'm restricted in it. Wait, oh. I'm restricted in well, it. Well, that's why I, I asked you about, about Bristol Sorry, Myers. Brother. That's why I asked you, follow me, Jimmy. Uh, you, said com- <laughs> you, said, you said compare the two, No, I Scott. said, why are Come you on, in Bristol Myers instead of J&J? I teed you up All perfectly, right. and then you hit rewind. All right, Bristol Myers. <laughs> Look, this is very simple. I program, want my pharma exposure. Oh, Josh, calm down. You have your time to speak. Plenty of it. Uh, Bristol Myers is a very cheap way to be in pharmaceuticals. <laughs> the Democrats are not even not even remotely targeting pharmaceuticals the way they were a couple of months ago. That's the space I want to be in. Bristol Myers is my play. All right. Thank you very much, Pharma Jim. All right. Unusual activity. Doc, what do you got? Uh, let's kick it off with DraftKings, Scott, because the 5th of November expiration, 8,500 of the 52 calls go off. Bought a lower strike, but those are the unusual activity. Apple, uh, 46,000 of the 149 calls hit, and bang, like that. They've been buying all the way up to the 150s today, Scott. Obviously, earnings plays coming into this. And then lastly, Netflix, which is tonight. Netflix, uh, very strong activity, but $18 billion surge Mm. in market cap over the past couple weeks. Is it all priced in, Scott? It depends on Squid Game, I guess. But I'm still long Netflix calls. I love where Apple is right now just because it sets up so nicely to talk about it as it approaches its earnings um, in the next couple of weeks. It's yep. at 148 and a half, 157 is the is the high. We'll see if it gets back to that level. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right, TRB, what's your final trade? You go first. Staying long Uber, I really feel this could have a five handle by year end. Mm. All right. We'll see. Uh, 4750 is where it currently sits. Stephanie Link. Halliburton. It was an inline quarter, but they were very positive on the conference call about cycle strength, pricing power, and free cash flow of $360 million. I think they're going to increase their buyback. Okay. Halliburton shares up nicely today, too, in a nice market. Dr. J. Uh, Tilray, Scott, uh, the end of October, the 29th of October expiration, 1050 calls. They're trading about, oh, 13,000 contracts. That's a lot more than normal. I joined the party and hopefully takes us a lot higher. Farmer Jim, you got the last 20 seconds all to you, my friend. Thank you, my brother. Industrials have a strong bid, and within industrials, defense and aerospace. Look at a company like Raytheon, or Northrop Grumman for that matter, but Raytheon, new 52-week high. The bid is there because there's no budget cuts coming, and China is saber-rattling. Good time for defense stocks. Good stuff, guys. Pelts and Einhorn tomorrow. Thanks so much for watching today. That does it for us. The exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. 
Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.